Welcome to Teachers Care Society, the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I'm joined by Daniel Kennedy, special education teacher from Northern California, as we discuss the shortage of special education teachers. We'll also be discussing the importance of parents and family involvement. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome back. Our first guest is Danielle Kennedy, a special education three through sixth grade MS teacher from Northern California. Well, first of all, how are you doing? And uh, what does a normal Saturday night look like for you? Oh, my gosh. The word normal. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I'm doing okay, considering everything going on in the world right now. Um, And I'm surviving distance learning as a teacher and a mom. So, you know, a Saturday night is probably just um, thriving on the fact that my children went to bed on time and I don't let myself work on a Saturday. So I'm not allowed to touch my computer for school stuff. And I actually try to watch something on the television that's not animated, which is rare. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, kind of boring mom life, I guess. Not not much going on a normal Saturday. No, I don't think there's ever a boring mom life. But to, uh, fun fact to all the listeners out there, I currently teach where Danielle used to teach. Um, do you miss the SPED team there? I, I know it's a great SPED team here. I, I do miss them. And of course, that's always like really tricky. I'm like, oh, I don't know whether to tell you I'm sorry or you're welcome. <laughs> um, I do. I do miss the team there. Definitely was closer to some than others. But that's just who you work with, like grade level wise and who you see the most. Um, and I was only there for a short time just for the circumstances I taught there, um, with living in Southern California versus Northern, but I do, I miss them. I still actually talk to, um, several of the people you work with weekly, a couple of them daily check-ins, just keeping teacher sanity alive. Mm. So those, uh, to those listeners who are, who are wondering, it is absolutely important, uh, knowing that you have a great team or a great support team and that the school I currently work at, I mean, Danielle can speak on this too. It's it's very supportive and it's nice knowing that these people are always willing to collaborate and some of them without hesitation, willing to help you out any time of day, uh, whether it's the late night calls or texts or just hopping on a quick video call. Big shout out to our school psych who has been completely understanding and flexible with everything that's been going on and she's has gone above and beyond to accommodate for, I mean, not only myself, but the family as well um and then like for danielle for you how how important is it to collaborate with the sped team at your at your school um it's probably one of the most important things if i'm really honest um especially in the dynamic i'm in now so where you are in my old job uh the one thing that was really nice that i hadn't experienced before was the fact that you are on a campus with several other um mods of your classrooms and so here where i am now that's not how our program works. We're all um, kind of like hosted, I guess you could say, on different campuses. So even though I have a lot of um, co-teachers in my program, almost none of us are on the same campus. And the few of us that are on the same campus aren't necessarily working with the same kids. So like I have Mod Severe and then the other class that's on my campus for our program is a therapeutic support class. Um, so obviously you can definitely still collaborate and work together, but having those two very different populations 
it's a little harder. Um, so I miss that dynamic where I could just pop across like the hallway on lunch and be like, Hey, what are you doing about this? And how are you using this? Because it's, I think for us, really important not to feel by ourselves because even I don't care what your program looks like for special ed, like it's really easy to feel isolated as a special education teacher, especially when you're in an SDC like we are versus being like an RSP teacher where you're pushing into the gen ed and you're seeing all the teachers and when you're in an SDC like we are, we're really isolated in our classrooms with those kiddos. And so those chances to really work with other teachers and not feel like you're completely alone. Um, it's not just beneficial for your students and your teaching, but it's really beneficial just for your like mental health as a teacher. So yeah, it's, it's a big deal in general. Like I need it wherever I go. I think I need collaboration just in life, but definitely in teaching. And the key word here is collaboration. And I know not everyone is going to get along um, with your SPED team, but you you got to put away your differences for the best interest of the students. And there have been some cases where I had no idea that these two teachers were just didn't get along. They were in some kind of beef and I didn't find out to the end of the school year or actually in another scenario until I left. And they were just so professional and put away their differences. And I mean, to the outside looker, no one would have known. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're there to ensure the achievements of the students' goals. Um, the best way to do this is by collaboration, like you said, uh, it's collaborating with the other services and the person's bed team, helping with these long and short-term goals, all these objectives, and how we're going to achieve those goals. Um, and of course, it would be easier if everyone got along, but we know that's not always the case. So what is it that you do to, to you know, make that strong bond or that collaboration with the SPED team? Oh, that one's, <laughs> that was a good one. Um, uh, honestly, I think it changes each time I have a different classroom or like new instructional aides or new coworkers. Because um, honestly, I think the biggest piece for me when I'm building it that I have to look at is I have to step back and remind myself, when people offer an idea that isn't mine, it's not, oh, this idea is better than this one. It's just giving you more, what's the word I want? Um, options, more options you to serve from rather than taking it personally. And that's probably the biggest thing I do to build a really strong team is make sure that everyone understands that, that ideas, the more, the better. It's never about who has the best ideas, who's giving more, who's giving less as well as really not isolating, uh, spotlighting maybe the strengths within your team, especially as far as you might have an IA who's really great at art. So I'm not going to stick her doing math or I have an IA who really loves doing circle time and singing. And I'm over here going, Oh, I'm off key and out of tone and nobody needs to hear this. So have at it. And Building that community and that understanding that we're all teachers and same across the board with other classroom teachers. One thing, especially in um, the classroom where you are now that I really enjoyed was that opportunity to have another teacher. And so when we would have chances for our classes to be together there really was this effort of, oh, I may not be your classroom teacher all the time, but I'm still a teacher and you show me respect the same way you show this teacher respect and creating that model of teamwork within the adults in front of the kids 
And sometimes that's also honestly a really good way because like you said in your statement, we don't all get along and we definitely don't all see eye to eye. Like that's just human nature. Um, we, we can say as teachers, Oh, I don't have favorites. We do. We all have a favorite aide or a favorite coworker or a favorite admin and a favorite student somewhere. It's, um, important that, you know, that is for you and not for everyone else to realize. And to build that strong team, you really have to find a way to, what's the word I want? Um, play to everyone's strengths. Play to everyone's strengths, but also you, you almost need to develop a really good, like, poker face. Um, or mindset where you're really even across the board with your staff. Um, in terms of, how you communicate with them, how you lean on them. Staff really picks up on who you go to the most for things and how you look at them when they're giving you information. And same way we do with our kids where we think, oh, body language with our students and coming down to their level. Like when you, well, I don't know if you do this. I don't know how tall you are. No offense. <laughs> um, but like I, I tend to squat a lot when I talk to my kids so that it's eye to eye and not this intimidation factor. But weirdly enough, I have found within building a strong classroom team, you almost have to have the same mindset with your staff. Um, obviously I'm not going to squat down to their height because then they're going to look at me and be like, you know, I'm not a child <laughs> because I am tall for a girl. But in just in that mindset of really giving power to their ideas in the classroom and not automatically shutting them down. Um, like, oh, I'm the teacher and you know, that's, that's great, but we're not, we're going to do it my way. Really incorporating everyone's strengths and ideas within the classroom, um, is how you build a strong team. But it's also, uh, that's, that's just a tough question, even with everything I just rambled to you, because <laughs> it really depends on the individuals. It, it's, it's a learning experience. Even now I'm in my, between gen ed and special ed, I'm in my 12th year teaching and it's different with every team and every member you meet because you really have to just learn how to work with them and not just by learning how they teach and how they work, but knowing yourself enough so that you're in control of your responses within your team, if that makes sense. No, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I mean, Danielle, you actually, uh, you started off teaching gen ed, right? And then you switched over to special education. So oh, how yeah. and why did, uh, how did this change happen? I jumped the fence. Um, <laughs> so I started teaching out of school into gen ed. Um, and I actually got my teaching credential originally, my first, my gen ed credential in North Carolina. And over there, it's a little different than California. You don't get the multiple subjects. You get an actual elementary ed, which is now K through five. But when I went through, it was K through six. So I did that. I worked over there in first, fifth. I did third for a little while, switched back to uh, first kindergarten combo. I love the tiny little humans, as I call them. Uh, and so I try to stick to the lower levels. Um, but I had actually been told a couple of times when I was in North Carolina before I had my own children, uh, oh, you need to go into special ed. You're just so great with the kids and you're so inclusive. And, and, and I was always that person going, <laughs> no. No, I like I am not that person. I don't have that strength. I don't have that patience. Like, no way I can't do what they do. And I just thought it was such a baffling concept. And special ed teachers are like superheroes. I was like, I can't do that. 
And then I had Kipton. Oh, yeah. So Kipton is my son. He's eight now. Um, pretty typically developing all the way to 18 months, babbling, doing his thing. And then he just stopped. He stopped talking. He started just he would throw his body around and he gets frustrated. And I'd just be standing there as this mom, like looking at my kid, like, oh, what do I do? Like he's laying on the floor, ramming his head into the floor because he's frustrated. And he used to have all these words. And now he's just just stopped, just not using them. And of course, you know, you go to the pediatrician as a paranoid first mom. Uh, Although I understand you'll never understand the first mom moment, but you know, um, I, and that panic, I'm just like, what's wrong? Like what? And it's an instant feeling of what did I do? And they started talking about autism and speech delays and all these possible things. But of course, because he was talking and stopped, you know, autism was the first thing they threw out. And I knew a little bit about it. My mom is a teacher and she's not social ed, but she's a teacher and she's had students in and out. And so it wasn't something like, oh, I've never heard this word. But I also didn't have the education I needed to about it, even as a gen ed teacher. They really don't give you a lot. And I found myself going, well, what does this mean? And I realized I had this really narrow idea of what autism was, even as an educator. And I didn't like it because I wasn't willing to accept kind of, I guess, the future they were laying out or what I should expect for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went through a lot of the therapies. Um, I am actually a former military spouse. And my daughter came along right around the time that Kipton started these in-home services and my their dad was deployed. So it was just me. So I was sitting in on all these therapies, taking in all these things. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And also like what he's doing all these things, even without talking, like he's just things that we relate so much to like the actual words coming out of your mouth. And you go, oh, well, if he can't say them, he can't do them or he's not understanding. And it just opened my eyes to this whole different level. So then comes the transfer to California and I'm sitting there going, oh, I can't go back to work. I need to get kids in a program and they want to put him on a bus and he's only three and totally going through this panic mindset of what am I going to do? I was ready to like give up teaching. And then the, the director for Kipton's program came in a couple of times when I was volunteering in his preschool class and was like, wait, you have a teaching degree? I was like, yeah, but it's general education. So I don't know how I can help you. And she's like, oh no, you, you can help me. And she had that look in her eye and I was like, all right now, don't get any ideas. And she got ideas and she got them in my head. And I ended up going um, back to school here in Northern California at Sonoma State. And I, oh my gosh, I wouldn't change a thing. It was so eye-opening. But I think what really made that final decision for me was being in gen ed and seeing what kids go through in gen ed and then experiencing this side as a mom. And I found myself going... Well, I don't want to be that mom who is also an educator who's asking a teacher to do things to help my child that I'm not willing to do. Like if I'm not willing to do this as an educator for a student, I can't ask someone else to do it. And then there was also that selfish side of, well, it'd be like two birds with one stone because I can learn how to work honestly with my own child because I felt stuck as a mom. I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And it's crushing like to feel that defeated as a mom. We feel defeated as teachers and it's overwhelming. But to feel that way as a mom was just like, 
what do I do? And so I started the process to get a special ed credential on top of the gen ed while teaching full time and having two kids. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a fence. I mean, I wasn't trying to, you know, do everything you're doing and I did not run a podcast. So props to you, but (laughs) that's, that's my, that's my jumping the fence uh, piece. Wow, that's a great stuff. So big, uh, big shout out to that uh, that principal then who uh, who pushed you in the right direction. Then <laughs> I, I still work for her now. Uh, she is actually I, I came back to her with my um, yeah with the split and the transition for us. She was amazing and led me on a path that I would not change. I can honestly say, if given the choice, I will probably never go back to Jeanette. Um, and she really is a huge piece of that. And she's one of those admins that I hope everyone in special ed can experience just for the hope and reminder that there are people in the admin, which no offense, because I, you know, I get that job's tough, but I tend to refer to it as the dark side. <laughs> and she's just one of those people that I feel like still gets it. She's still so connected to those in the classroom. And she not only protects the students, but also the teachers and the families. And she's really, I think, what made me jump that fence. Uh, what a great story. Um, let's, let's jump into our first topic. And that is about shortages of special teachers. So even the current pandemic situation, there's an overall teacher shortage across the nation. And if we look specifically at California, then we we have many of uh, California's approximately 800,000 special education uh, students taught by teachers who haven't completed their mm-hmm. teacher preparation programs or only have partial training. And if we compare the numbers with the school year of 2017 to 2018, where we had more special education teachers with substandard credentials, than any other subject area. And then we fast forward back to today, where about 60% of first year special education teachers are working without a full special education teaching credential. Um, And that's according to the California Commission on Teaching Credentialing. Now, Danielle, you look at these numbers and you think about this, looking at the perspective, you know, as a teacher and a mom, do these numbers surprise you? As a teacher, the numbers don't surprise me. And as a mom, they uh, they irritate me. Um, and as a teacher, they irritate me a little too. There's definitely different reasons, uh, loopholes in teaching. And, you know, we always have the, well, this piece of this and this piece of that works and this doesn't. Uh, as a mom, it is definitely frustrating. But as a teacher, I also feel it. And the biggest thing about special ed, too, that I think leads to some of these numbers and these shortages is pandemic aside, burnout is real. (laughs) And like you asked me earlier about collaboration and like having a great team, that is such a big player in burnout. And if you don't feel like you have support as a teacher or as a mom, a mom in general, but especially when you have a kid who has special needs in any way, shape or form, it is so easy to burn out. And, you know, it's so cliche and people always tell you, oh, it takes a village. And you're like, (laughs) what does that mean? And then you have kids and you're like, oh, yeah, it's all these people who I wish would knock on my door right now because I don't know what I want to cook for dinner. And my son's having a meltdown and he needs sensory regulation. But my daughter's freaking out because she wants to play with a friend. And now my son is crying. And then I have this student over here. who's and, And that's before the pandemic situation. And now you look at the situation we're in and the needs of our students. And 
I have a lot of parents sitting here going, how are we supposed to do this? And it's made me realize the same frustration I have that I see with these numbers around the lack of teachers and the fact that they don't have credentials and the frustration with the classrooms is the lack of education. And I think the reality of the situation, which I also think is hitting parents right now. So from the mom perspective, our kids go to school every day. We know they're getting services. We advocate for them. Yes, we know our kids best. But there's a reason that special education teachers have all these extra things we have to do and all these extra classes and these behavior classes and this class and this class. And there's a reason that we have this whole separate credential we have to earn because it's, this job is hard and there's so much more to this job than, and I say this, I don't want to offend any gen ed teachers because I was one. So it's always like, it's really tough to word this without feeling like you're like splitting them, but that's not what it's about. It's just the reality that these kids that are in these special ed classes, with us, especially in a mod severe setting, I mean, mod severe should say it all. You're talking about kids who they, they cannot, for whatever reason, access that gen ed curriculum. And so you have to step out of that box and gen ed thinking and find all these ways to approach these kids while also maintaining a really open, flexible mindset that goes way beyond gen ed. I, I currently have a class of 12 in a mod severe, which is a, a lot. <laughs> Um, for our population, but then you look at this gen ed class that has 28 and I go, yeah, it is a lot. And I'm not taking away from one or the other, but the burnout in our classes is real because where gen ed, okay, you have a fifth grader giving you some behavior problems. Let's call in counseling. Let's call in this. I have a fifth grader who, um, still needs a device to speak, still needs help toileting, can't communicate his needs, which builds that frustration because they're coming in to that fifth grade. I'm independent. I want to do things on my own. And it's just this whole other set of challenges. And when we sit there and we put these teachers into these classrooms before they've had the education as a whole, you, you kind of pick yourself before you even have a chance to like get started because there's already, I went in with a full gen ed credential. I can't, I have special ed mom, earn the special ed credential had background, have worked with kids with special needs, and I still go in and I go, oh my God, can I do this? <laughs> and and then you put these teachers who haven't even finished these courses into these classrooms and it's like, you can read books all day long, you can read scenarios, but until you are put in that room and you have to stand there and be the one experiencing it, I've been bitten. I've been stabbed with scissors. I've had desks thrown over. I've had kids, you know, spit in my face. I've had kids lick my arms. Um, and it it's shocking. Even going in, knowing the things that my own son does. I mean, for the longest time, he thought he was a dog and he would only say hello by barking or licking you. And yet when another child who was not my own licked me, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> And because it's it's not real until it's real and you get in there and you can really see how you'll handle it. And you stick these teachers in without giving them the preparation. Like, for example, when I went through, okay, so mind you, coming from Gen Ed, thankfully, I had some background in education. So I knew about data, not to the extreme of special ed paperwork, but... <laughs> 
I, I had a, I knew some basis. I knew how to collect data. I knew how to look for these things. And I did have some behavior classes just because I did a minor in psychology and like early childhood development. But for those that, you know, don't have that extra already, you put them in there. And so my very first semester of getting my special ed credential, I had um, data and a couple other things that were like, oh, okay, yeah, we can flow through this. But in the classroom, I'm sitting here going, when's the class on behavior and strategies? Because um, I got bit today and this kid threw this desk and we're not really sure why and we weren't able to find the trigger. And can somebody help me with this? And they're like, oh, that's in semester three. And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> so, so you think about that from a teacher who's going to come into this preparation program, probably quite possibly with no experience in gen ed or just in this situation. And you're going to put them in that setting, working this full-time job. You're in charge. You're taking the data. You're doing this. And yet you haven't had the class to take the data. So, of course, I'm not surprised by this, but it also is super irritating from a mom side and the teacher side, because on the mom side, it's like, really, you're putting this person in with my child, my, my child who is in a lot severe setting, you're putting someone in who hasn't even finished. And on the teacher side, it's frustrating because as a teacher who really loves her job and clearly, I'm sure, you know, we don't do this for the paycheck. <laughs> uh, it's frustrating because I'm like, you are, raising the risk of losing teachers who could be so effective and so amazing if you mentored and guided and gave them the education they need before you threw them to the wolves. Yeah. So it's like, it's two forms of frustration. Like as a mom, I'm like, what in the world? No, I'm not okay with this. She can't handle my kid, which I know is wrong to say as a teacher, but you know, mom brain works differently. I don't care who you are. (laughs) <laughs> and you go into protective mode. And I'm like, no, she doesn't even know how to, she doesn't know behavior strategies because she hasn't had behavior class. And my kid is, my kid personally, is that's more his area of need is the social skills and the behavior versus he's fine academically. And then the teacher side is going, but I see so much potential and she could be amazing, but she doesn't have the tool she needs yet. And that's not her or his fault. And yet we're going to lose this teacher or they're going to burn out really early. And then we're going to be in a shortage and you're just going to have lost some of the good ones because we didn't set them up for success the same way we should set our students up for success. We shouldn't be setting them up to fail. We want to set them up to succeed. Why aren't we doing that for teachers? Exactly. So it's one, uh, one big domino effect. And then, I mean, even going back to the school year of 2017 to 2018, the number of first year special education teachers without the full credentials was the highest in over a decade with you know numbers over 5,000. And that was according to the Learning Policy Institute, which is a research and policy organization from Palo Alto. Now, Danielle and I know that special education is not for everybody and it requires a certain special set of skills and characteristics to be an effective special education teacher. And then this is not me putting on a horn, but it's just, it's true. It's a totally different world. Like even, even looking at the difference from mild, moderate to moderate, severe, that's also a big difference. And it's just a totally different credential pathway. Danielle, when you, since you made the change from Janet to SPED, I guess what were your biggest eye openers for you during this 
transitioned? Oh my gosh, to be really honest, I would go home a lot of days and just be like, oh my God, I hope I did not sound like that or ever say those <laughs> things to people. And it made me want to like go back and apologize to people and just ask, did I ever say this to you? Because this is insane. And why do they not get it? And a lot of that is in that perspective of, and I say this coming from Gen Ed and not getting even enough of a uh, brush up or bare minimum of special education knowledge as a Gen Ed teacher to realize the things we say and the misconceptions we have. And so some of the things that would make me stop and just be like, what? Like when teachers look at you and go, oh, well, you know, I wish I had a class of only six. And I'm going, huh? As they're catching you saying that as you're like running to the office because you need to go get some serious nurse uh, antiseptic cleaner because you just got bit and you just, you know, and I think that was really big for me was for them to just be like, oh, yeah, well, at least it's only six or or the other one was. I have had, and this was actually eye-opening as well as I think heartbreaking when you have the teachers that will look at a kid in their class and just kind of look at you, you know, that like type over the shoulder, like, oh, this one probably belongs with you. And I'm like, excuse me, why? And usually it's, you know, sometimes there there is, but oftentimes it was just a kiddo who needed just a little, a little switch. Um, there are a lot of things that we do. And this is probably a really big eye opener too. I look, I'm, I'm like registering them as you ask them. I've never thought of this as an eye opener. It just seems like, oh, well, this is just what we do. But it's actually funny because there are so many things that we do in our special ed classes and these SDCs that I look at gen ed teachers and they're like, well, how do you deal with this? And they just do this. And it's like, oh, that's just a simple fix. He needs a visual schedule. He just, he needs prediction. You threw him off routine. Like give him, give him something to go by or give him a fair warning or, hey, give that kid a two minute timer. And I'm not saying that's a fix all, but there is a large group of kids that just need little tweaks and warnings and predictions and routines. And I think we forget that. And it's really eye-opening when you do switch and you have those conversations. I, your big question about collaboration, one thing I do love about the way the program is set up where I am is the program is huge on integration. Whether, whether that means that my kid in my class is able to mainstream one day or whether it just means that he's able to hang and successfully integrate into recess and socialize with other kids. Either way, integration in any form for these kids is not only amazing for our students, but also those Gen Ed students. And that was a big eye-opener for me to realize that that was a very closed door from both sides. It's like, oh, the well, they're not going to be receptive of us. And the Gen Ed is kind of like, oh, those kids, oh, they we shouldn't mix our kids because they... They, you know, once they don't get along or they don't do this and our kids will ask questions and I'm over here going, well, then ask the questions and answer them when they ask. And that was eye opening. Almost, I guess, the fear around, well, how do we talk to gen ed students about special ed students? I'm like, well, how do you talk to your kid about dinner? I don't know. It's a conversation. Like, they ask a question, you answer it. My kid asked, Mom, how the other day, Kipton's like, oh, uh, how was Planet Earth made? I'm like, oh, uh, science wasn't my strong suit. Let's look it up. So my kid asked, well, why does that kid 
have trouble speaking or why do they need an iPad? I don't know. Let's ask them. And I think that also gives power to those students and those students' families to be heard. And the fact that that wasn't happening and still was such a strong, I mean, I'm going to use this word because I think it is like still such a strong segregation of special ed kids and gen ed kids was just like, wow, like, I didn't realize this was still so, I don't want to call us like ignorant because I was a gen ed teacher too and I didn't, but we're so blind to it. Like we're just conditioned to not see it. Like this is just how it is and it's how it's going to be. And so I think as well as having such a great fed team and like creating that collaboration, my biggest eye opener was an almost like light bulb, not even eye opener, but from those eye opening experiences said like my big goal as a special education teacher and a special needs mom was no, 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 no. I want to collaborate with you. I want to be in gen ed meetings. I want to talk to these teachers. I, I want you to see my kids. I want you to know my kids and I want your students to know them. And I want to know your students. They're all on one campus together. They're all part of this community. Like, ah, where is that collaboration happening? And that was probably the big, like, whoa moment for me of, no, like, this is, this has to stop if we want to move forward. And it, you are, and I think a lot of that comes from though, like what you said, it's special education isn't for everyone, but educating anyone on our students doesn't mean that you have to suddenly want to be a special education teacher or learn what we learn. And I think that's what people think. They're like, oh, if I ask the questions, I'm going to have to like dive deep. And that <laughs> I'm like, no, just be a part of it and realize that I don't think it's tooting our own horn. Like you said, that it takes a different person. It takes a different person just to teach in general. <laughs> like, let's just be honest. Um, it's very different to have your own kids and then be with other people's kids and kids that aren't your own that you don't have necessarily that same emotional tie to. And, but then to take special ed and it is, it's just switching over. You're just, you don't see the separation from the gen ed side in the sense that you do from special ed where you go, this is not okay. It's you kind of stand on that gen ed thing going, Oh, well that's what they need. So they need to be over here and we need to give them their space and do this. Whereas on the gen ed and I'm like, no, come into my bubble, meet my students, like talk to them, treat them like humans, be like, make us part of your community. We are all in this. And that I still, you know, we're going to be working on that probably forever. It just is what it is. But that's probably the biggest thing for me is just, wow, you you think we're so much farther than we are. And we honestly just still have so far to go. You're totally right about that. And I mean, if we going back to the to the data, and if we go back, you know, even further into the data, we know that underprepared teachers are more likely to suspend or expel students with special needs because they're just not adequately trained. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about training teachers and DAs and how to deal with behavior as well, because special education is not all academic. There are many different goals and objectives that special education teachers need to meet. And yes, academics make a good chunk of that, but you know, we also have social skills, cooperation and self-coping and the list goes on. And, and so Danielle, what was the biggest um, misrepresentation that you've heard or seen people say about special education? Okay, this one is kind of tricky because if you're asking me as a teacher versus a mom, my answer would vary a bit. Uh, so as a teacher, I think like I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest mis 
uh, misrepresentations that I think I experienced early on was the whole um, small class size. Like, oh, mm-hmm. well, it's just a few kids. So it, in the sense that it's not difficult. And it's, well, yes, but it's a small class size because the needs are, you know, <laughs> almost tripling, <laughs> if not more. Um, as well as that idea of, um, oh, they, these kids won't, won't have a, almost this idea that they won't be able to have like a fulfilled life path childhood and oh they're you know adulthood's gonna be hard and it, and let's be real adulthood is hard in general like <laughs> I'm over here going adulting like do I have to today I just um, do, do we do we have to like can I have pajama day and stay in bed it's hard no matter what and we all have our challenges and I think if anything teaching in this pandemic has shown that like even across gen ed um you know we need we need to show grace give grace, have grace, um, because we're all, we all have our own stuff happening. And that essentially is the same thing for these students that we have. And it is such a different chunk of skill sets that we're teaching them. And that then you have that side as a mom, if I'm really honest, is uh, the one I got all the time. And not so much in the class I have right now, um, but the class that I taught previously in Northern California before I moved to Southern California, I had kind of the melting pot of students. They did, they didn't, they weren't quite in the extremely low functioning, and they were academic, but we had some behavior struggles. They were kind of like in that middle mix of high functioning and low functioning, and I found it so frustrating because I heard it. So for my own son was, oh, yeah, um, he, well, he he doesn't look like he has special needs. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, what does special needs look like? <laughs> um, and that was frustrating for me because my son struggled more with behavior than academics. And that's not necessarily what special ed is. And one thing that's really big to remember, too, with these misrepresentations that we hear and see is at the end of the day, when you look at all these students' behaviors, these behaviors are a form of communication. <laughs> They're communicating something, whether that's, hey, I'm overwhelmed. It's too loud. It's too noisy. I don't understand. I'm hungry. I'm anxious. I'm stressed. I'm scared. And they don't have the way to communicate that. Then it's going to come out in a behavior that may look like a temper tantrum or a fit or a misbehaving child. Um, and a lot of times, you know, it's tied to something so much more and if we could realize that then and spread some of these strategies that we in our classes put so much focus on, then I feel like we would get a lot of further, get a lot further, even for gen ed kids. Like some of these little coping strategies and social skills could be used across the board. And yet again, you have that weird separation happening um and it's oh it's frustrating teacher and mom it's it's frustrating and trying to break those misrepresentations and like break those um stereotypes is a battle all on its own yeah let's uh well let's take a step back and look at what is actually needed for a teacher candidate to actually become a special education teacher and for those who don't know the whole process, well, this would be a great mini lesson for you. So first of all, you need a bachelor's degree. And then afterwards, you need to pass the teacher's 
preparation program that you know, involves the credentialing program as well. And then you need to pass the credentialing tests and observations. And then these teacher preparation programs have speciality areas like special education, like mild, mod, or moderate, severe. Then you have physical and health impairments, early childhood special education, language and academic development, social and emotionally disturbed, visual impairments, and deaf and hard of hearing. And I'm sure missing a few, but then after all this, once a teacher candidate has completed all these tasks, they receive a preliminary credential and well, what's a preliminary credential? Well, more or less, it's a, it's kind of like a placeholder or like a safe checkpoint that states that the teacher candidate has completed the teacher preparation program, but they still need to complete additional specific requirements based on the preparation pathway they, they submitted. And each credential pathway is different, you know, whether you teach gen ed, sped, dual language, dual immersion, just everything in between. And so... What's an induction program? Well, it's essentially a one to two year program that teachers need to do to clear their preliminary credential. So basically everything that you've done in your teacher preparation program, you just have to prove it to the commission of the teaching credential that you applied everything uh, in your classroom. And it's meant to support new teachers with all this comprehensive guidance and assistance through the school year. And then uh, guess what happens during the induction? You have more observations and more more, uh, formal reflections and all this feedback from a mentor. So basically you just need to prove that you're an effective teacher. So I mean, Danielle, with all this, like, what do you think about the steps needed to be a credential teacher? Uh, I just essentially feel, honestly, they tack on more work rather than tack on more support. And so the same way we need to set our students up for success, they're, they're setting our teachers up to fail and we need to set them up to succeed. And by adding all these stipulations with the induction program and this extra work rather than support, we're just supporting the burnout. Mm, exactly. So let's go back to the statistics I gave about the first year special education teachers without a credential and about 3,000 out of the 5,000 or so underprepared teachers are actually working with short-term staffing or uh, provisional intern permits that only require a bachelor's degree and a completion of a basic skills test, something like the CBEST. Um, plus as little as nine semester units of coursework in a combination of special, and I'm using quotes here, general education classes for students, not in special education. So to take that in consideration, the big general scope. So nine semester units is really just three classes for those who don't know, because, um, college of ed or liberal study classes, classes are usually three units each. And to meet those nine, nine semester units, it's essentially just three classes. So with statistics like that, what does this say about the way we're preparing our special education teachers? <laughs> Horribly. No, that's extreme. <laughs> um, so this is kind of tricky because I don't know if I have mentioned this in this interview or even in conversations we've had, but when I transferred over from my general education degree to my special ed while I was going to school working full time, I t- was technically under the intern permit, but my obviously bachelor's degree was in general education. So I at least had an education background. Uh, One of the teachers that works in our program was actually going through the program at the same time as me. And although he didn't have a gen ed teaching degree, he had been subbing in specifically special education SDC classes for almost 10 years. So you're looking at someone who at least had been in and knew, hey, this is what I want to do. I've been in it. I've been around these kids. I know what they throw at subs, which let's be real. If we think what they throw at us as teachers 
gen ed or special ed kids who they know when there's a sub <laughs> um, and they, they put it on thick. They know when the strategies are off and the routines aren't the same and the person doesn't know the system as well. And they play that. And it's again, human nature, like who wouldn't even adults do that. Um, and so I think this is, this is kind of tricky within the statistics because if you're just looking at the paperwork side of it and how, like if you were to look at my paper trail, I guess, of my education and my credentials, I went through a period where through California, I was an intern with an intern permit. But if you dig deeper, my bachelor's degree that I went into that with had education background, had experience, just like my coworker who went through that program. But then you turn around and you do have those people who are switching over or working as an intern who have something super basic or something in a field that in all honesty has nothing to do with teaching and props to you for having that bachelor's degree will not necessarily help you in any way in education. And so it's, and it's also funny for me, I think coming from another state adds like a perspective to this too, because it's very different to get into education and kind of the requirements in North Carolina. Um, this whole intern permit and this many classes and this and that, that's not a thing. My mom is a high school teacher. She was not always a teacher. And so for her to become a teacher and earn hers, she had to do what they call, rather than call you an intern, you are a lateral entry teacher. Um, And so she had to go and take courses but it's, it's just set up a little differently. Like she had to pass. So we also don't have, um, the C best and the C sorry, if I say this incorrectly, because I didn't have to take them here, the, uh, the C set, is that the other one? Um, yeah, and then you guys have that one that everyone hates taking the Rika. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so didn't have that in North Carolina where I went to school to get into an education program to become a teacher. You have to pass the Praxis one, which from what I understand is a lot like one of your C somethings, the one with like your basic knowledge of math, English, like kind of those basic core skills. And then mm-hmm. that's how you get accepted an admission to an education program at a college. And then when you finish it, it's like, Oh yeah, you have your degree, but then to get your actual license to teach, they call it a license, not a certificate or a credential. <laughs> it's oh, the language is it's a barrier when you go to switch over. Really it is. Um, but when you go to get your license, you actually have to, you graduate with your degree. Woohoo. Here we go. You then have to turn around and pass the praxis too. And that kind of has, from what I understand, because again, I, I didn't have to do CBES, CSET, and RECA, It We kind of have a combination. And I actually was told by several people that it's actually a little more complex with the Praxis because California just seems to separate everything. So instead of having like these big... Uh, collaborative tests, testing all this knowledge, they've got like these little tests everywhere for every little thing. Um, and I, from my experience, not just not like I am not law, I get it. Every state has their guidelines. But from my experience, what I had to do to get my teaching degree in North Carolina made a lot more sense than this did to me and also required me to have 
I think a lot more going in. Whereas here, like your statistics show, you are definitely the statistics <laughs> guy, not me. I'm not the biggest numbers <laughs> person. I'm more of like an emotion, passionate, hey, this is this. <laughs> um, but I think you can, you can almost kind of see that difference because you do, you have, and I've worked with a lot of teachers who are underprepared or, and are coming in like, and they're like, Oh yeah, I'm on an intern permit. I'm like, Oh, I did that. And I'm like, what, what did you do before? And they're like, Oh, I, you know, worked at the snack shack. Like that's what's on my head. Sorry. Like they could be like a rocket scientist either way. That's very different than coming in with some form of background in education. Like even if you subbed just something that gives you more of experience and something to grasp onto for this field. And again, I think that's that same conversation we had with like the burnout and the, you know, first year teachers and this and that and just supporting them. It's, you're putting these teachers in with before they have a skill set they need. And then they're supposed to teach this skill set to students that they don't have or don't even realize exists. I mean, ask a teacher who hasn't gone through the correct class yet about task analysis. And like, they're going to be like, uh, huh? Like there's just, and so again, it's just, it's kind of like this spiral. And I feel like a consistent issue in all of these things of not supporting and setting up teachers for success, yet you expect us to set students up for success. Yeah, it's totally crazy. So, so get this. Remember how I said that special education teachers have to do all this extra coursework and preparation to get their credential? Or it turns out like roughly about 2000 uh, special education teachers who started teaching in 2017 to the 2018 school year only had an intern credential, meaning that these teachers were only required to have 120 hours of preparation, you know, typically in classes over the summer or right before they're taught in their own class in the fall. And this number is drastically much less than the amount of preparation a teacher candidate for trying to obtain their general education credentials is trying to do. So for those who don't know, when intern credentials are issued when a school district cannot find a suitable, fully prepared teacher, and these intern credential teachers must collaborate with the teaching commission, the district, and the local enforcement agency. So in your years as a teacher, even just a mom, have you ever seen teachers and just like wondered, wow, they are really not prepared for this? How did they get this job? I can't get in trouble for this response, can I? Because, um, <laughs> yes, uh, not only have I been like, how do they get this job? But I find myself going, how have you kept this job? Like, who <laughs> is checking in on you? Um, and I say that as a teacher and as a mom, there's times I'm just like, what? Who, did you see this? Like, I feel myself going, wait, did you hear that? Are you not taking that the way I did? Did you not see this happen? Are you, am I the only one that's taking this in? And I think, I think this is a very different, uh, what sort of, a very different view or I guess topic than, uh, an unprepared teacher. So for me, when I think of this question, I'm like, Oh, here's the thing with this question. 
I have seen teachers that I have thought this about are kind of been like, wait, like scratching my head, like hold, hold on with teachers who are prepared with teachers who have been teaching for like years. Um, so this question is interesting to me just because everything else has really been about, Oh, first year teachers and not supporting them and not being prepared. But for me, this question is, especially as a parent more like, Oh, just in general as a teacher, do you ever go, why do you do this? And I do. There's teachers where I go, yeah, you are not prepared. Or I'm like, you don't get it. Or, and I hate saying this, and but I do think this is across any field. You have in different jobs, you have people you're like, oh, I get why you do this. Even when you're failing or feeling defeated or they did something that you don't understand and you're like, wait, why did you do that? And you might not get like where they were coming from in their approach. You can still look at this educator and be like, but I get the passion it came from and I get the intent that was there. And then you have that other side of that where you look and you go, there's nothing else to say, but why are you here? <laughs> like, like do, do you even want to be here? Do you really not get this or do you not care? And I think that's kind of where I'm just like, Oh, um, did you know what you were walking into and choose to do it anyway? Or did you not know? And now you're just stuck and not sure how to ask for help. Or are you, and I hate saying this, but I'm sorry. I think even you can admit, I think if we asked every teacher in the world, every, every job, nurses, dot, whatever, there's always in every field too, like the one upper, I'm like, Oh, you're just here to always have something to top someone else. Yet I've never seen evidence of this. And I think that kind of plays too on what you were talking about, like with collaboration, working with others. And you mentioned like two teachers that you never would have known didn't get along. And this is where like that level of professionalism and also reminding yourself why you do this job comes in because I can't actually look at that teacher and be like, what? <laughs> that it's not going to get a good response. And I think you really have to step in and be like, Oh, like find that way to guide or help or, collaborate and build it as a, Hey, I just think we should make a good team because they're all having kids with this issue. When in my head, I'm just kind of going, wow, like, wow. <laughs> and then also that side of, unfortunately you do work with some people where you go, Oh my God, are we that desperate? And, and I say that carefully. And I do not say that as me thinking I'm a perfect teacher because I am the most self like, Oh, what's the word I want? Uh, not self I guess self-conscious. I'm constantly like, Oh my gosh, I need to do this. Or I didn't do this. Or I need to work on this. Um, so I say that coming from a place of like constantly trying to, Oh, this wasn't good enough, um, for my own standards. But I do find myself just going, what, what are you doing here? And are we so desperate to fill these positions that will put anyone in them? And it's demeaning to the teacher's, who are here because we want to be, and we are putting so much into this. And that, that's, yeah. it feels it's, it's a defeated feeling to have. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, um, it is a very defeating feeling, you know, as a, you know, a teacher who's there, who wants to teach and you see the district hiring, you know, these teachers who are just unprepared, then it's also defeating coming in as an unprepared teacher and you're seeing all these experienced teachers and you come in like, wow, why did the district hire me if I'm not even ready? And so it's defeating on both ends. And 
Even looking at the last numbers that I've read about the amount of hours a general education teacher does in the preparation program, that's about 300 hours. And you can see that big difference from the previous number I said, where those intern teachers only are doing 120 hours. And so you can see how this like solution has a lot of faults in it. And I understand that districts, they might think this is the only thing that we can do right now. This is our only solution that we have, particularly with special education. And this is the sales pitch. So they want to hire those who are thinking about special education that might be in another profession or even career. And even those who don't have the time and money to spend those one to two years in a postgraduate program to earn that full teaching credential. And there's a lot of money involved with the teaching credential program as well. And this is something that people often overlook. And these, these programs are expensive, just you know, just getting the preliminary credential is expensive. Plus, there's a cost to clear the credential as well through an induction program. If you're lucky, your district or employer will pay all or even just a portion. And so there's another four to $8,000 right there. And right here in California, the credential programs something cost 4000 a year. So with all that being said, Danielle, what, I mean, what do you think about this temporary solutions districts are trying to do to get special education teachers is hiring all of a sudden these teachers that are unprepared? Their temporary solution is honestly like creating more long-term problems <laughs> than necessary. We already have so far to go in special ed and just in education as a whole, especially right now, but they're so focused on the now we need to fix this now. And what's the quick solution, the fast solution. Like it's almost like using duct tape <laughs> and <laughs> don't get me wrong. Duct tape is great in some situations, but it's not the fix all that a lot of people like to think it is. And it's, it's kind of like the, you know, we all like a good deal when we're shopping, speaking of sales pitches, but you know, there's certain things, God bless my daddy. He loves to tell you, you can, <laughs> you can buy the generic version of some things, but you never buy generic toilet paper, trash bags. And I think Ziplocs, I don't remember anymore because you're just going to spend more money because they're going to fall apart and, da, 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 and you're going to use more anyway. And you know, you laugh when your parents tell you those, like, it's like the, Oh, when I was a kid, we kicked the can story and these funny little like <laughs> living things they have. But then you get in the real world and you're working and especially in education, I look at this and I, it's funny because I I do. I think of my dad saying that all the time. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's what we're doing. We're trying to like solve this like shortage with buying this generic, you know, cheap version of this rather than really investing in a long-term solution. And so now we're just making more of a problem. We're creating more of a problem and creating more of a hole because we're looking at this, Oh, quick fix solution. And you know, Oh, it, and all it happens in the long term is we're losing more teachers than if you put the time in to educate them properly and to just support them and switch where you're investing in these teachers. Like, I'm sorry, but the money we spend on the induction program for these teachers and I have yet to meet anyone. And hey, there may be somebody out there. Let me say that. But I've yet to meet anyone who goes, oh, yeah, I got so much out of that. Most of the time it's, oh, yeah, it was a lot of work and was kind of like a repeat of what I had to do while I was still in school to begin with. Um, the mentors and the filling this paperwork out. And, and that's essentially what it is. And so, hello, you've now just created more burnout. So you just invested all this money for this induction program for this teacher who taught with us for about three years and was like, oh my God, I can't do this. And now they're out and you're back at the beginning spending all this money again for a teacher who will again probably burn out. 
because we're not supporting in the areas we should be supporting in. So, you know, we're trying to use cheap toilet paper, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, for those who aren't, you know, if you're not a special education credential teacher, then this is the other sales pitch that districts are trying to do as well. They're trying to do some strategies like, all right, we'll pay you bonuses and, you know, we'll recruit teachers, you know, while they're still undergraduates. And I mean, Daniel, like if you weren't a credential teacher and you know, you were still an undergraduate, will you like take some of these offers? Like these school districts coming into your undergraduate program and do these job fairs and saying, hey, if you join now, we'll give you a bonus. Like, is this enough to entice you? Or do you just think about it and like, hmm, I see a lot of problems down in the future if I, uh, I take this job because I'm going to be paying catch up and I don't feel adequately prepared enough to teach special education. Would you, would you take these, uh, these bonuses and all these, uh, incentives that these school districts are offering? It's so hard for me to like back up my brain to a point when I haven't been teaching and had a credential or at this point, you know, been a mom dealing with education, but it's hard. It's honestly hard for me to say, but if I think back to where I was when I was, you know, going through school and trying to figure out that like final path and didn't have kids and responsibilities in this situation and you're throwing the things out that they're throwing, that immediate response is, oh yeah, okay, well that seems easy enough. (laughs) But I think if we can encourage people honestly to stop and go, okay, that's great in the moment, but let's look like look down the line. And if you stop and really look at it, it's like, it's not worth it. And I think to ask if you'd feel, I don't think it kind of comes back to this with all teaching gen ed too, but I don't know that anyone can truly feel adequately prepared to teach anyone until they're in it. You can think you are going in and every single first year teacher is going to step in that room. And it may not even be the first day. It may not even be till after Christmas break. You will have the moment where you are in a situation where you go, I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with this? Who do I ask about this? And it's either a panic moment or just a moment of shutdown, depending on who you are as a person and how you cope. And that's in teaching across the board. So then to put that perspective into special education and I just, all my head hurts for the people who have to make this decision because I I don't like to feel as a person unprepared for anything. Like, you know, it's like, Hey, did you email me this questions? Cause I'm a nervous doctor. Like that, I'm, but that's me and everything. Like I still keep a paper planner. Cause what if my phone dies and then my planner won't remind me? Like I, I like to feel prepared. Maybe it's cause I have, you know, two kids that I have to keep track of or just the nature of teaching and feeling there's a lot of things to juggle. It helps me just feel more in place. I'm not super rigid on it, but I know that it helps me. So like I look at this and I'm just like, no, I, I don't want to feel unprepared for anything but then to be like in charge of a bunch of children's education let alone these children with these very specific and so often high risk needs it it doesn't weigh out and yet thinking of my mindset straight out of school I don't know that I would be able to look at it that way and I think that's kind of the problem we have is that we don't right out of school. You don't like, we don't have that mindset to look at the long term, and we see, well, we know teaching doesn't pay much and we know this doesn't do much. So this is like, this is a big deal. When in reality, once we get a couple years in, we go, this was not a big deal and this was not worth it. And now I'm struggling to keep my head above water. Yeah. And then to add even more to the sales pitch, you have, you know, at the government level, you have the governor, Gavin Newsom, that's trying to help the sales pitch by even proposing 
$90 million in scholarships for new teachers and essentially trying to recruit and train teachers who teach in high needs area, including math, science, and of course, special education. And even, you know, there's a thing called uh, the Teach Grant for this. And it's great news that there's money out there. There's incentives out there for the new generation of teachers. It's all great on paper, but we still have to see the results. We still have to wait a few years to see if this payoff is really worth it. And the most current data we have is from 2017, in which nearly eight in California schools were struggling to find special education teachers. They need to school districts having to place less prepared teachers in these classrooms. And I have dual credentials in special education and multiple subjects. And I will definitely say that while I was job hunting, it was harder finding um, open positions in general education. And with Newsom proposing this 21% increase in special education funding, he wanted to originally channel the money only to a fraction of districts. So basically those with both an above average uh, proportion of low income children and with a higher uh, than average percentage of students with disabilities. Now the districts and special education leaders opposed to this idea. And so some revisions were made. So, Danielle, since you have two credentials in gen ed and in special ed, did you notice like the job hunt? Did you notice like maybe districts were hiring more for special ed than gen ed? Oh, they, they definitely are. It's definitely a, a massive difference. Um, and it's almost like the shift. So uh, I don't I don't even know your age to say I'm a lot older than you, but um, <laughs> I might age myself for some. But um, when I first was going through my program for gen ed, I don't even want to say how many years ago, <laughs> I... <laughs> There was the push that, oh, if you can add some um, specializations to your elementary degree, you'll have a better chance of finding a job. Because at the time, what we're seeing now with special education, it was that push of we need we need more math and science teachers. So I actually trying to increase my uh, chances to get a job straight out of school with my gen ed had gone and taken the additional testing to get my math and um, science science for middle school added to my elementary school credentials. And even looking at that, I remember hunting for jobs and being like, oh, I'm really glad I did that because there were so many more options. And then when I added the special ed credential and was transferring from my, you know, from North Carolina to California and transferring places and having to switch jobs kind of without a choice, it was mind blowing to see the difference in how many jobs were for special ed versus any of the other jobs altogether. Even after experiencing that wave of when math and science was the, oh, we need this, we need this. Even that wasn't as significant as the gap between the need for special ed versus gen ed. Um, and it, it's so tied in uh, funding is just a whole nother thing. But the reason you have that need is because you're losing those special education teachers left and right because of burnout. And so <laughs> these districts are having to constantly find new teachers and we're, they're just not, they're not out there. And so then you get stuck and you have those teachers who aren't even done with programs yet. And, you know, they've found those ways through um, not only like you, you've mentioned a lot with the intern credential, but I've seen a lot of people like teaching on like 30 day emergency 
So, oh my God, I can't even keep up with the CTC. They have so many different things, but like, uh, I think it's like a 30 day emergency sub credentials. And like, I've seen so many people getting put in positions by finding a way to like fit what they have into some permit somewhere, just enough to hold on to that, <laughs> that credibility or requirement to just hold this position. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. You're, t- you're, you're totally right about that. Like the whole reason that there's a push and more, more budget and funding for these teacher initiatives is, you know, there's two factors. The first is, there's just a lower enrollment numbers for teacher preparation programs. Um, the public is well aware that teachers that teaching is an underpaid position. And you know, the second is the retention rate. It turns out that special education teachers uh, you know, leave their jobs at higher rates than general education teachers. So you can see, imagine the retention retention rate for underprepared teachers. And I know you briefly talked about this, but like when school districts are hiring underprepared districts, underprepared students, um, underprepared teachers, um, what, what is, you know, how does this set them up for failure? Okay. So I, I have two approaches or I guess views of this. So from the teacher standpoint, again, like we've been talking about, they're not prepared. (laughs) That's not going (laughs) to set you up for success in any dynamic of education, gen ed or special ed. But then you're talking about special education. (laughs) You're talking about kids who need more access, more strategies, more assistance. And you're putting teachers who honestly are underprepared to be put into a gen ed classroom. They're just underprepared all around. And so you're failing the students, the system and the teachers. But another way they fail and they almost set themselves up for more issues all around, especially in a legal sense, like if you want to be real about it, with parents by doing this. Parents who are there and advocating for their kids don't take this lightly and they will voice it and advocate for their child when they feel a teacher doesn't have what it takes or is underprepared or is not serving their child or meeting their needs. And that's not for teacher, just teachers either in special ed. Like I'm going to be real from the mother's standpoint. I I get it. I'm not like a, Oh, I'm calling my lawyer mom. There are some out there. And while some, yes, some parents are quick to that. That's gen ed or special ed. But in a lot of these cases, ah, this is where I sit on a fence because I am a teacher and I know how hard it is for us. And I know that a lot of things are out of our hands as teachers that parents don't realize, which is sometimes hard for me to remember because I am the, I am on both sides of it. Um, but I will say as a parent also, though, I totally get that and find that Sometimes I do, I may not be able to say it on the teacher side of the table, but sometimes I'm sitting in my head going, yeah, they have a point. Like, (laughs) I hate to break it to you. Like, yes, I have to back. This is our school and our program, but I'm also sitting here going, yeah, but they're not wrong. The parent's not wrong when they're (laughs) approaching this. And it's this teacher didn't do this. It's in his IEP. This is here. And sometimes it's, you know, there's not good teachers in the world. There's not good nurses in the world. It's across the board. So I'm not saying that's always what it is, 
But I do feel like a majority of it is because those teachers are not prepared. Um, I actually have been, I like to dive in and really dig into like research and information, not statistics like you, um, <laughs> but like really just like teacher to teacher support research and um, collaborations across the board. And like, I like hearing from teachers from other states about like, hey, how are you prepared for I'm really interested in how teachers were prepared and educated for reading, understanding and creating IEPs and successful goals and meaningful goals and things that like make sense rather than, oh, well, he can't do this and he's supposed to be able to do this by the third grade standard. So I'm just going to write this goal versus writing a goal for this child. Um, and it's really interesting to hear from teachers and actually not just underprepared teachers, but teachers who actually are pretty prepared and I think have their stuff together say, yeah, no, I really wasn't supported or educated at the levels they feel they needed to be in the area of an IEP. And I find that really interesting. And I think, and that's where I think districts get themselves into trouble with this the biggest, because, you know, we've talked a lot about teachers and districts and this and that, but there's another key player when we're talking about special education and that's the parents and the family and they're, they're going to fight too. So it's not just the district setting themselves up to have burnout of teachers and burnout of this, but they're also setting themselves up for that um, battle with these students' families when the whole purpose is that we're coming together as a team for these kids. And that's that, unfortunately, when you put these underprepared teachers in that position, you create the opposite and you create this battle rather than this team of collaborative people advocating for a child. Yeah. And well, I know we've been talking mostly about California, but if we look across the country in Rhode Island, we also see that there have the nationwide shortage of qualified teachers and it's only going to get worse in the months to come as teachers are returning to teach either, you know, both in person and remote learning or whatever it may be. Some, some teachers who are doing the hybrid teachers are actually working overtime and get this. Some teachers are also helping cover other classes during unassigned periods to make up for the lack of substitute teachers in the district. And so in Providence, Rhode Island, the district is currently short some 100 teachers and they also need of an additional 100 for substitutes. And looking at the data from the American Federation of Teachers, statistics, statistics show that one in three teachers stated that the pandemic has forced them to retire earlier than planned. So let's look at the national level with the Economic Policy Institute reporting that public K-12 educational employment is more than half a million jobs below this time last year and about 890,000 below the projected growth based on student enrollment data reported back from 2008. And the idea is that, yeah, as there's more children in the world, then that's supposed to mean we have more teachers. It's supposed to be a direct correlation. Well, as it turns out, we actually have a shortage of teachers. And so, and, you know, what do you think about the districts in Rhode Island where they really have to stretch their teachers out and they have to take on all these extra duties? I think that's why they have a shortage. <laughs> Again, like, why would you do that to these teachers? It's just, it's burning them out. And I, I can't speak for Rhode Island directly, but in this situation, I mentioned earlier, my mom teaches high school and she's in North Carolina and her school is currently in the hybrid model. And oh my gosh, it's, I, you know, we check in, I'm really close with my mom. She's a big part of what led me into teaching in general. And 
talking to her. And I've got to tell you, when I talk to these teachers who are in hybrid, I'm like, oh my gosh, put me in person or keep me in remote, but don't, don't do both. (laughs) Because I, I, I I get, I go, oh my God, I'm in a burnout. And that's a lot coming for me because I, I do this for a reason. I have so much personal investment in special education because I've seen what it has done for my son. I have seen what it has brought out of him, even though I had people telling me, oh, we might as well just get used to it. He'll probably never talk. And now the kid has a reading level, a grade and a half above his age. And he has vocabulary that I'm just like, what? What? Why do you even know that word? Um <laughs> And it's amazing to see, but also heartbreaking at the same time, because I, you know, been told this wouldn't happen. And it's because of these amazing teachers and they, and then you're going to sit here and do this to them. And I'm over here going, how much, how, how much longer can we do this? And now you're going to add more. These hybrid teachers are having basically without what's happening in Rhode Island with these teachers having to cover other teachers, teachers positions, they're already in the hybrid model, essentially teaching two full-time teaching positions that might as well be separate. Because while you're dealing with this in-person cohort, you also have to supply for this virtual group. And I don't know specifics on Rhode Island, but I know some of the states that have the hybrids are, um, so it's not just you're in or you're out. They have the cohort that's, you know, on two days of the week. Then they have the cohort that's the other two days of the week. And then they have the kids who choose virtual. So if you really break that down, these teachers are not even expected to do two jobs. It's almost like four. You have the all virtual that you have to plan for every single day because they're all virtual. You have your first cohort where you have to plan for their in-person and plan for their virtual when they're not there. So there's essentially two different class preppings. And then same thing for that other cohort. So even without expecting a teacher to cover other positions because substitutes are low or someone's out or whatever, you're already asking one teacher to basically do the job of five. (laughs) And it's just insane. And I, I'm sure that like kind of, cause you're like, Oh, hybrid is two. But I, my mom is doing it. I've talked to her. I've seen how she's designing. I've talked to a couple other teachers that I know that still, that are still living back home that are doing hybrid. And that's essentially what's happening. Like it's not just, Oh, so you're in person. So you're covered and you're virtual. So you're covered. No, you're here Monday and Tuesday. So I have to have in-person lessons for you on Monday and Tuesday, but then I have to provide something for you to do on Thursday and Friday. Virtually. I have to have virtual lessons every day for the ones that are online every day. And then I have to have Monday, Tuesday lessons for the kids that come in person on Thursday, Friday, but I can't just give you the same lesson as the kids that came Monday and Tuesday because you haven't been presented what they got until Thursday and Friday. Like, I'm just telling this to you is making my head spin. And I'm like, wait, are you getting this? Do you understand this? So to be the teacher in that position, like, uh, I hope for Rhode Island's sake that they have teachers at all by the time this is done. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even looking at my district, and I'm from you know, LA, and so... My district were very straightforward. They let me know right from the beginning that they would have a hard time finding substitutes for anybody. Um, and as you can see, it's hard finding you know substitute teachers, even in special education. So essentially what they would do is if I was absent or I knew I wasn't going to be there that day, that they were going to take my students and put it with the same grade level 
special education teacher. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, uh, you you can see all the falsehoods happening happening with this. And, you know, because of all this and the lack of substitutes and an even more lack of special education substitutes, districts are trying to get more competitive by offering better pay and better benefits, but it just still isn't working. And and Danielle, I know you briefly talked about this, but I mean, why do you think even with all these monetary incentives, people still aren't flocking to these positions? Well, on a personal snarky note, coming from your district, I have had to do that and cover the class. And I'm here to tell you the supplement is doesn't even begin to touch what we go through. Um, anyway, uh, but it's, again, it's, you know, it's this short term incentive that even as a short term incentive doesn't measure up to (laughs) the job and the responsibilities and everything you need to have in this position, even as a sub. But it also is just that it's these little incentives here and there that it doesn't continue. It's like, Oh, we've got you. And now we hope we can just hook you, but we just, we're going to just keep knocking off. Like, Oh, now we've got you and you're in our system. We're just going to kind of keep using and using. And so people are like, what, what's the purpose? And if I'm completely honest there, I think there are enough people out there right now that are going, what, what the education system in these districts right now view as an incentive. And they're like, Oh, this is like a great deal for you guys. And then we're all over here going like, I don't even think I could go to the grocery for that. (laughs) Really? That's an incentive to you. Like what? I, I just, it's the perspective (laughs) from that higher level, uh, you know, admin, not in the classroom, making all the decisions, peace to the people in the trenches, if you will, that perspective of, oh, but this is a great incentive. And then we're over here going (laughs) for what? (laughs) I I could probably, you know, make more if I go out and wash cars with my kids on the weekend. And at least then I'm out in the sun and it's fun and silly. Like what? Like what? Um, So yeah, like I, perspective plays a big role, I think. And, you know, I joked earlier and I say this with love because I do, I have an amazing admin. Um, there was an admin shift. You have the admin that I left with, but I, there was a different one I hired. And I have to say, I, I personally really, um, liked working with the principal that you have. Um, but, that's not always the case. And so I do joke and I love my admin now. Uh, they're the reason I came back to this program. Um, but I have worked in many other situations and that's not the case. And so I do continue to joke that admin is the dark side. And, but part of that comes from that mindset and experience too, of seeing just how separated you become the longer and longer. They're not in that classroom with you. They're not experiencing what we experience daily. The more that, um, Oh, <laughs> reality based <laughs> view of what we're going through and what we're doing and what we're putting forth in our job doesn't match up to what they view as an incentive because they have this very uh, disconnected view of what it actually takes to be in these positions. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I do laugh at some of these incentives. <laughs> like, it's, oh, we'll give you a hundred dollar bonus. I'm like, okay. Oh yeah. That's, like, uh, you know, <laughs> going to fill my gas tank. Oh, not even that. <laughs> I have an eight year old who's obsessed with Nintendo switch. 
And I'm like, dude, uh-huh. that's like not even two games. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like that's going to entertain my kids for like a month and a half. Like you got to do better. Yeah. And you know, even going back to the, you know, the push for, you know, for more teachers and hiring and, you know, there, there are outreach programs that are just more and more aggressive at these job fairs at the universities and even outside hiring agencies. And even, even on social media now I know to, to hire teachers. And so I even remember job openings being posted much earlier in the school year. And I do like the idea that local government is pushing for more money for hiring teachers. This is usually K-12 uh, public you know, education systems that end up on the chopping block for budget cuts. I just, I hope that there's a push for more qualified teachers and uh, that does this carry through. And I know there's these loan forgiveness, these grants, these scholarships and I think the most recent thing that I've seen is this residency program where a teacher candidate works with a mentor teacher for a school year while getting paid before getting their own classroom. And this is one of my favorite because the teacher candidate gets paid and everyone knows that, you know, student teaching, you don't get paid. So I, I like this one a lot. And this kind of leads into the next topic about family and parent involvement. And so... Danielle, like, have you seen families be more involved more than ever during this pandemic? I have. I I think that it's kind of a twofold. Um, I have seen families becoming more involved almost because they have to be there. There really isn't the option anymore. Um, And you definitely have the parents who are involved. Don't get me wrong. Um, But you definitely have some who are more involved than others. And unfortunately, you do also have the ones who are not always involved by much. Um, And this has really forced these families to become involved and they kind of have to be. And it's hard uh, because they they essentially have had to kind of take on some of those teacher roles. And so for us, that means as teachers, we need to support them in that, which again, adds another piece to our job, which is fine. I actually love that portion because I feel like it helps connect the families in the community. And if, you know, there's consistency between home and school, I feel like you can create much uh, more progress and success for a student. But um, I do, I will say that as tough as this situation has been, I do think it's pushed families to have to be more involved and also to have to kind of seek out that education, um, especially for those special education students. Like, you know, you sometimes you have the parent who is very involved, but also maybe in strategies and how do I do this? And well, they just need to sit at school at home. Like we don't do schoolwork because they've had to do it all day, but now you do have to do that. And so you're seeing that involvement, um, around educating themselves for what helps their child. Yeah. And I will say that I've noticed that, you know, when the families are there with their children during instruction time, then I see how supportive and how invested these families are. And I definitely recommend being open with the families and parents, letting them know uh, what's going on, explain as much as possible. You know, what can we do and what can we not do? And I know families are so worried about the severe learning loss and skills regression, especially over the summer that happened. But now, you know, you have these families that knowingly going to the school year that is going to be disconcerting um, and they, they try and be much more involved. And so, you know, Danielle, you know, like I said earlier, you're on both sides of this. How do you keep families involved and how do you stay involved as a parent? Well, that one's a little tough and not saying I'm the only one there. Definitely more than just me in the world, but uh, I'm rocking the single mom thing. So the staying involved as a parent part for me has definitely been an adjustment. Um, 
in this dynamic because as I'm teaching, my kiddos are in school. And so for me to support them in what they got on the Zoom, I kind of have to check back in. So I'm actually um, communicating with their teachers a lot by email. They And again, like you said, I encourage openness, like all their teachers know, Hey, I teach also. So I'm teaching when they're in class. So I have them in the room. I'm here. If like, there's an immediate, like, Hey, they need support or Hey, they're, you know, (laughs) they need to be rallied because you know, my son hides under the desk for math. You know, it's not his thing. This is hard on all these kids. Um, but I think it comes back to some things I said early too, about just like having grace, giving grace, just, you know, those teachers are trying their best. And as long as we're trying our best and working together and communicating that, um, I think it's when we just stop communicating that the problems really will increase. Um, one of the ways that I have really tried to keep my families involved is constant communication um, and asking them to be like, Hey, I'm not there. You've got to tell me what's working, what's not working so that we can adjust because I'm not there. I'm not in the classroom. I can't just hand off materials to you and switch. Like we're going to have to try things. The communication is going to have to happen um, more often so that we can constantly be making sure we're on top of this so that you don't get into a situation where you're experiencing like really extreme behaviors, um, more so than could be expected considering we're in a pandemic. Um, but helping them try to be proactive rather than reactive. And that it's gotta be communication where we used to, and we still do not used to, but where our goal as teachers for the most part during the day and educating our students is to collaborate with other teachers. Well, now those families are becoming essentially another teacher. And so that collaboration needs to carry over which means those communications need to happen. Um, For me personally, as a mom, I also do try to be really open with my families. Um, You know, I have my things that are private and I don't, but I also tell, you know, I'm like, I have two kids at home. We are struggling with this too. My son has an IEP. This is hard. And I let them know that I'm like, you're not alone. We are all struggling. Please talk to me. Cause if you don't talk to me, I cannot help you. Um, and I will also say I have had some families where I have looked at them and they are trying so hard to keep their kid on the zoom and not having it. And you can see them, you know, the parent wants to be in tears. The kid wants to be in tears. And I have looked right at them and been like, you need to log off because here's my thing. And I feel this way about any student, not even just special ed. If a child is so upset and so emotionally distraught, they are not getting anything out of any academics or whatever you're presenting to them in person or online. If they are not regulated and they are that upset and that frustrated and that just that coming out of your skin feeling, they're not getting anything out of it anyway. So turn it off, help them regulate, take a breather for yourself Because as a parent and a teacher, if we do not take care of each other mentally right now, the academic education doesn't matter because they're not, none of us are taking it in anyway. And we're only causing honestly further damage to ourselves in this whole situation. And I've been really, really upfront with my parents in that. Um, And I advocate for them in that to admin. They're like, well, why are they coming on and not staying on? I'm like, because this child can't handle it. And it's causing more of a behavior issue and a stress. And we are doing more trauma to them mentally to force something that just isn't working than to say, Hey, 
take a break today and we're going to try this again tomorrow. The same way we would in a class. We don't take a kid who has a goal to sit for five minutes with a baseline of only being able to sit for 10 seconds and automatically say, oh, we're going to make them sit for five. We build it. And that's what we have to do in this situation as well. And I really, really stress that for my parents, especially because they are seeing all the other kids. That is one thing I will say I've been uh, really big on with my families too is it's hard not to in this dynamic where you're for the first time ever basically in class with your student and seeing what every other child is doing. Stop comparing, like stop comparing because where your child may not be able to sit still and this child is your child can't sit still, but can do multiplication in his head. And this child can sit still, but he's still working on one-to-one correspondence and he's two years older than your child. Like we, I really stress this, like take care of you, focus on your child. That is what matters right now. Don't compare, don't beat yourself up. When you need a break, you've got to take it because we're not, we're not getting anything out of forcing ourselves to have essentially a breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you're you know you're you're absolutely right if uh if the child is not in that mood or just not in that state of mind then why are you going to try and force them to you know sit for a quick learning session they're, they're not going to absorb anything they're not going to learn anything if they're not in that mindset no they, they really won't and i'll tell you this regulation for me is really big because i experienced it with my son on the mom side my son was in speech just speech because in North Carolina, they didn't see a need for OT, which we won't get into that. Um, a year of speech and he made no progress. And I, I say that very (laughs) none. And I try to find the silver lining. There was no progress. We got to California, got him into the, um, early intervention age preschool Within the first three days, the teacher's like, why doesn't he have OT? I'm like, I don't know. Ask North Carolina. You know, I got a little snarky. And I was like, I fought for it. Um, So they added it. Within a month of my child receiving regulation techniques and strategies through OT services, all of a sudden his speech started picking up and he was all of a sudden rammering on in full sentences from literally saying no and grunting was all he would, all he did. And by adding OT and helping him regulate his body, his mind, the, the needs that he needed that were sensory based, he was able to access and take in the speech. And so that regulation piece from sensory, just mental regulation physical regulation is so key for what anyone can take in. Like think about when you're dysregulated at, you know, you're a functioning adult and you know, there's a rock in your shoe. Like it's going to be really hard for you to concentrate on something as you're trying to walk and do this or, you know, like, and then we expect kids to just power through these things that we as adults can't even power through without adjusting. And so I think that's such a key during this right now. Yeah. And I know you briefly talked about this. I know that there's a lot of limitations with the pandemic, whether you're in hybrid or fully 
assist learning and I wanted my fans to focus on we could, what we could do rather than what we can't do. And so I will start off the first few weeks just getting to know the families, getting to know the students because some of the, you know, for some of these students, this is their first uh, school experience ever and it's behind a computer screen. And so I just really wanted to get to know what kind of student they are, what they're like, their dislikes, just the whole funds of knowledge. And I thought, you know, in order to do this, this will let me know what we could accomplish with the resources they had, with the time availability that they had. I needed to know when would be a good time to work on goals, what time of the day, and uh, to do these one-on-one, and when the parents had work and what other duties, and just the list goes on. I mean, for you, I mean, what was your approach Mine was somewhat similar. So I, I kind of was in this weird dynamic as well. I'm coming back to a program. I know I knew my IAs, but I hadn't directly worked with them. I knew a handful of my students because I had them when they were in preschool, didn't have them for elementary and now they're back with me. So I have some knowledge, but not the most current knowledge, but the parents knew me. So that was, you know, I think comforting for the parents. And then I have students and parents that I'm completely new to as well as the fact that I have four grade levels and across those four grade levels, I have oh so many sub levels and I have 12 students. Um, I have kids who can totally interact with the iPads, move the iPads, do the icons, log into Google classroom to the kids who aren't communicating and are not even accessing, you know, switches to communicate basic cause and effect devices. Um, and so I spent a lot of time really navigating, building just a relationship with these kids, getting them just engaged and willing to be on the Zoom and even just look at the staff and the other students and what was going on um, and trying to get to know them <laughs> through this awkward dynamic of being on a Zoom screen um, to help make those connections um, as well as same with families. Uh, you know, and I kind of approach it similar. I honestly, with parents approached it pretty similarly to how I do during the school year. Like, you know, what are your concerns? What, what do you feel their strengths are? Where, where do you want them to be versus, you know, what the school has established as goals and what we're looking at and kind of get a whole picture of what these parents want for their kids. Um, as well as it really does just having those conversations also really gauge you on uh, the expectations of the family as well as their expectations of their students. Because, you know, you have the parents who are like, I don't care if they have this diagnosis. I know they can do this and I want them here. And it might be like a high academic need. And then you have the parents who are just, you know, oh my gosh, I just want them to be able to respond. I want to be able to, you know, ask my kiddo a question and know, know what they want from me. And the parent wants to feel less helpless um, versus really being concerned about an academic need. And I think I kind of approach it that way to kind of see what my parents wanted to get out of this situation. Because I do, I have some parents who right now are very much like distance learning. Wow. This is, (laughs) I don't know how to do this. Like I just want us to survive mentally. I want us all to still be standing at the end of this and still, you know, love each other and not just want to be as far away as possible. And then I have the students who the parents are like, I don't want them regressing academically or with social skills or this or that. And that really guides how I'm going to work with them through this 
distance learning mayhem. Um, so that, that's kind of how I approached it, both student and parent side. And now, you know, we kind of got a, a mix of things happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So when, when the children, when they see that the parents and the teachers are on the same page and that helps create better consistency with the children's outcome goals, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, whether it's learning, academic behavior, and it shows that for the families, the, the families and the teachers are all, all on the same page and we all have this shared responsibility in educating students and it's important for the children to recognize this as well. And so collaborating with the family helps reduce even challenge behaviors. It, 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 if families tell me that the student gets triggered by certain things or certain times of the day, then I can adjust and make those appropriate decisions and interventions. And essentially I become a coach for, for the parents as well, teaching them how to these, these coping strategies. Um, have you found yourself in a similar situation? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> and sometimes I feel like I'm doing more education and coaching for the parent than I am the student in the moment. And at first I was like, wait, that's not what this is about. Like I need to work with a student. And the further we've gotten into it, the more I've realized that it is what it's about because I'm not there to offer the supports I would need to, to help the child work on these skills or goals. And for the parent to be able to do that and help me do that for their child, they need to know how to do these things. You know, like, uh, I don't know about you, but prompting, I, uh, prompting is a task in itself and like trying to educate, even, you know, making sure that consistency and prompts and prompt fading for these kids and building that independence. Um, that's a difficult task just to make sure you've got consistent across a classroom staff of teachers and instructional aides and service providers so that, you know, you don't have one giving too much and not enough. And they're getting this very consistent, but then to have to educate the parent on it, even if they have, you know, some background in it for doing it at home, it's very different. And I say this from that mom standpoint, I use a lot of strategies with my son and the consistency is a big part. And when he knows that I am talking to his teachers and that collaboration is happening, it makes a huge difference, but it also makes a huge difference for him to see that I am going to consistently have these expectations for him. And this is how we're going to do this. And this is how we like this is. And he has that understanding of this is the routine. This is the expectation and that, but there's also in that mom front for me, I have that leeway to also be that emotional standpoint and not saying that we're not emotional supports as teachers because we definitely are. But again, when it is your own personal child, I mean, there's a reason I don't homeschool. I would never want one of my children in my own class. I've never wanted this situation because I've never wanted to have to create that line for my kids. I am a teacher. I'm an educator. I love what I do. But for my children, I am mom. And it is two very different jobs, two very different support systems. So to now have to blend those two is very confusing and conflicting for my kids. And I know that it's happening for our families too. And so I find that I actually am okay with a session with a kid, maybe turning into more of a session with the parent. If we're building that skill and confidence for the parent to be able to support their child. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And I, even with collaboration, I, I know it doesn't come easy for 
for certain families. And I know some families might be in denial or refuse to believe their own child's diagnostic and their abilities. And other challenges could be language barriers or just even finding time in their busy schedule to sit down and talk and collaborate. But, you know, we have to push through these challenges and I have to find solutions to meet these challenges. And whether it's having some kind of parent communication translation device or technology or whether it's, you know, I think you briefly mentioned how you send a lot of emails. I, you know, I send a lot of emails, but I send a lot of video emails because I think that's it's a little bit more personal. It's nice because for these families that aren't, aren't able to join in the live sessions, they can still not only hear, but see what I look like. They can see what their teacher looks like because they're, they're not able uh, to join in those live sessions. So that's, that's why I do those video emails. But what are some ways that you continue pushing for parent and family involvement? Even without the pandemic, parent and family involvement has always been a, a core for me. And I think that stems from being a parent. Um, even in gen ed, but especially in special ed, because our community is small and that support is huge. And knowing you have people that understand and get it and just are there without judgment. And I, I try to really push that in my class too. And so, um, I, I let parents, you know, I, I have my limitations. I'm like, Hey, this is my cutoff time. This is cause I do have my own kids, but I do really let parents know. I'm like, you know, if you're, it's, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon and you're struggling with this assignment and you are just you and your kid are in tears and you just don't understand it. And it's confusing and frustrating and you need help, like, please reach out. Um, and I think honestly, the biggest thing I do that helps across the board is keeping that communication open. And I think one thing too, that is really beneficial is encouraging that involvement in the sessions. Um, sometimes I have, I have a couple parents who will get on next to their child and then they'll start to support. And then they kind of look at the screen and back off almost like they feel like, Oh, I'm not supposed to do this. And I'm like, no, come back. That was great. Like, and almost like the same way we reinforce like those positive behaviors and those behaviors we want to see with students. I feel like I'm doing that with parents as well. Um, and just constantly trying to encourage in the same way. I'm like, you know, we have a kiddo who never sits and he finally sits and it was only 30 seconds, but I'm making a big deal about that. <laughs> Fun funnily, I'm not even pronouncing that word correctly. Funny enough. <laughs> um, I, I found myself doing the same with parents, like making a big deal to give that parent that praise of, Hey, they didn't sit for a long time today, but you were on it and your redirection was awesome. And like, you've got that. And just providing that same encouragement so that they don't feel like what's the point. Yeah. Hmm. So I want to end this episode on a positive note. Is there, is there any advice that you would give to new incoming teachers or those just even thinking about entering the education field? For those that are already in the education field and just new incoming teachers and completed programs, honestly, don't feel like you have to know it all. There is nothing that says you have to. And the best thing you can do is ask questions, collaborate with teachers with experience. I know you mentioned earlier about like being in, you know, coming in as a less experienced teacher and working with experience and being intimidated, kind of change that mindset and think, Oh, 
I now have so many brains to pick. Like, don't <laughs> rather than, oh my gosh, I can't live up to this. Like, oh, I have so much knowledge at my fingertips. Don't be afraid to ask those questions, ask for help to go to those teachers that have that experience. But at the same token, also do not let yourself feel inferior. Um, if you have an idea, say it. Like, as much as you want to take in their knowledge, share yours, share your ideas. Um, don't be quiet in that sense or afraid. For those thinking about entering the education field, I say this and I mean it positively, but really don't make the decision lightly. Don't be that teacher that's like, oh, this sounds great because it's incentive or this sounds great because my friend does this. And but do you really know what your friend is going through? Like ask for the nitty gritty. Don't go. Don't, you know, tell them don't give me the sugar coated version of, oh, I love them and it's challenging. But at like, why is it challenging? What's happening? Ask the teacher who's not afraid to tell you that she got bit today because that, that's just the reality of it um, in special ed. Like those things will happen. Hey, might even happen in gen ed. Um, kind of same thing though as the incoming teachers. Ask the questions. Talk to people who are no, who are going through it. Um, don't, don't make the decision lightly because not only is it not fair to you to then turn around and be like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. Did I make the right decision? It's also not fair to these students. Like don't just yeah. don't make the decision lightly. I encourage I love education. And if you find that you really want to do it, do it. There are going to be days that you go, why am I doing it? There are going to be days <laughs> that you're like, well, I'm done. But there are going to be so many more days where you're just like, ah, that's why I do this. And I want a day like this again. And there's so many of those moments, but it is a tough job. And so if you're looking for the rewards in money, praise, this isn't it. But if you're just looking for something that is so much more than you, then go for it. But just be confident in yourself. Don't be afraid. But also just don't don't take it lightly. It's 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 not easy, but it is insanely rewarding on levels that are so beyond materialistic. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Well, this has been another episode of Teachers Care Society. I wanted to say thank you to today's guest, Danielle Kennedy, and most importantly, you the listeners. See you next time. 